The Blessing, the King, and the Torah of Moshe by Rav Chanoch Waxman Near the end of Parashat Bezot HaBaracha, upon completing his blessing to each and every individual tribe, Moshe turns to the community as a whole. Addressing the nation by the poetic name Yeshurun, he utters the last words he will ever speak to the children of Israel. He speaks the last words of Moshe recorded in the Torah. O Yeshurun, there is none like God, riding through the heavens to help you, through the skies in his majesty. The ancient God is a refuge above. A support underneath are the arms everlasting, and he shall drive out the enemy before you, and shall say, Destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety alone, the fountain of Yaakov, in a land of grain and wine. Also the heavens shall drip down dew. O happy Israel, who is like you? a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, your sword majestic, and your enemies shall submit before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. As indicated by the arrangement into poetic form and stanzas in the citation above, Moshe's blessing is spoken in poetic style. It can be divided into three segments, each beginning by addressing or speaking of Yisrael, or its poetic variation, Yishurun. Thematically, Moshe's final prophetic blessing speaks of God's military prowess in both its opening and closing segments. In the opening of the blessing, in a play on the term for chariot, Merkava, God is depicted as riding, Rochev, through the heavens, to drive out the enemies of Israel before them. God pronounces destruction upon the enemies of Israel, and the deed is done. Similarly, but in slight contrast, the closing segment of the blessing celebrates and or prophesies the impending destruction of Israel's enemies. God is the shield and sword of Israel. He saves Israel and helps them to subdue their enemies and tread upon their high places. This thematic parallelism is highlighted by a crucial literary device. Both the opening and closing segments of this final blessing include the terms help, majesty, and enemy, or some variation thereof, in this particular ABC sequence, God rides through the heavens to help Israel, blazing across the skies in his majesty to drive out the enemies of Israel. Likewise, in the closing celebratory segment, God is the shield that helps the majestic sword, who causes Israel's enemies to submit. In point of fact, the ABC parallelism between the opening segment and the closing segment serves as more than just a literary means of emphasizing the theme of God's military might and dedication to the defeat of Israel's enemies. In addition, it creates a frame around the middle paragraph and should draw our attention back to the center, the textual heart of Moshe's final blessing. To return to the text, Then Israel shall dwell in safety alone, the fountain of Yaakov in a land of grain and wine, also the heavens shall drip down dew. Picking up on the reference to God as a refuge above and a support underneath, in the opening paragraph, the middle segment of the blessing opens by declaring that God guarantees the security and safety of Israel. Israel dwells alone, undisturbed by outside forces or enemy agents. God's might also protects, but there is more to it than this. The middle segment of the poem ends by declaring that Israel will be located in a land of grain and wine, dripping with the dew of the heavens. God's might also provides. This conjunction of terms and images of Yaakov Yisrael, grain, wine, dew, and heavens, should remind us of a similar passage found in Sefer Breshit, 
a passage reporting the first blessing received by Yaakov Yisrael. In blessing his son, Yitzchak declares the following, And God should give you of the dew of the heavens and the fatness of the land, abundance of grain and wine. Moshe deliberately echoes the blessing of Yitzchak given to Yaakov. Dew of the heavens, grain and wine abound. This, of course, should not surprise us. The provision forecast by Moshe and provided by God is not something new. Rather, it constitutes the accomplishment of the promise, the covenantal blessing granted to the forefathers in general, and the progenitor Yaakov in particular. As such, Moshe echoes the language of that first blessing received by Yaakov. Moreover, as pointed out by both the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban, Moshe's prophetic blessing of the twelve tribes at the end of his life constitutes an echo or perhaps a reenactment or continuation of Yaakov's prophetic blessing of the twelve tribes at the end of his life. In point of fact, numerous linguistic parallels exist between the two sets of blessings. Again, by no surprise, at the center of his final words, in his general blessing of the descendants of Yaakov, at the moment of recreation or continuity, Moshe draws on the first blessing received by the individual Yaakov in trust for his descendants. Yet something should surprise us. A closer look should make us realize that Moshe seems to omit a key term. In his blessing to Yaakov, in between his references to the dew of the heavens and an abundance of grain and wine, Yitzchak wishes Yaakov the fatness of the land. In glaring contrast, despite deliberately echoing Yitzchak's words to Yaakov and mentioning dew, heavens, grain, and wine, Moshe omits any mention of the fatness of the land. To be more precise, Moshe indeed blesses Israel with a land of grain and wine. The fifth key term of Yitzchak's blessing, the term land, is present in Moshe's blessing. Only the sixth term, the fatness, of the said land is absent. While this may seem a minor point, a difference of a single word, the contrast requires explanation. After all, Moshe's words blessing Israel with the land, with God's provision and sustenance, are modeled after the very first blessing received by Yaakov. If so, why does Moshe omit the term? This question in turn raises a larger issue. As mentioned above and assumed throughout our analysis until this point, the passage under discussion constitutes the final part of Moshe's blessing, the last words of Moshe. They are the means by which Moshe ends his part of Sefer Dvarim, his career, his teaching of the people, and the means by which he seals the Torah. As such, we may duly wonder not just at Moshe's particular choice of words, but also as to his choice of topic and overall purpose. Indeed, God's power, protection, and provision for Israel, or to use an alternative formulation, the future realization of God's promise to the forefathers of successful nationhood in the land under divine providence, certainly constitutes suitable topics with which to seal the Torah. Nevertheless, this is not the whole story. What about Moshe himself? What constitutes the connection to Moshe's career and his agenda in Sefer Dvarim? If we may dare to ask, in what way do these words constitute a unique and suitable finish to Torah Moshe, the Torah of Moshe? Let us begin by turning our attention back to the beginning of Moshe's final words. As mentioned above, Moshe begins by addressing the people with a poetic variation of the name Yisrael, the term Yishurun. As cited earlier, the exact sentence reads as follows. O Yishurun, there is none like God. Moshe declares God's uniqueness. While admittedly part of the genre of poetic and prophetic blessing, Moshe's declaration also constitutes a theological statement. God is unique, and by implication, he is the only real God. 
Again, by implication, it is God alone who is the God of Israel. In other words, Moshe's opening sentence stands in conceptual parallel to another time Moshe addresses Israel, the famed declaration of Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. In this light, Moshe's declaration, the first line of the final segment of Moshe's larger blessing of Israel, also stands in parallel to the other time Moshe utilizes the name Yishiruin in his larger blessing, the closing line of the opening segment of the blessing. Right before delineating the individual blessing of each and every tribe, in what most probably constitutes a reference to the events at Sinai, Moshe mentions the kingship of God over Yishurun. And he was king in Yishurun when the heads of the people assembled, the tribes of Israel, together. In other words, Moshe's individual blessings to the respective tribes are framed by the name Yishurun, and parallel declarations reminding Israel of God's uniqueness, in other words, absolute divinity, and kingship over Israel. All this stands in marked contrast to the third and only other time the name Yishirun appears in the Torah, Shirat HaAzinu, the song of HaAzinu just spoken by Moshe, already contains the name Yishirun. Comparing the people to a recalcitrant and rebellious animal, Shirat HaAzinu depicts Yishirun as kicking. In elaboration, the song states the following, Then he forsook God who made him, and spurned the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they brought him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, no gods, gods they had never known, to new gods who came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. You neglected the rock that begot you, forgot the god that brought you forth. The contrast could not be clearer. Yishiruin forsakes, spurns, neglects, and forgets God. In his stead, the people turned to strange gods, abominations, demons, no gods, gods that they have never known, and even the newest contemporary gods. God is not unique, God's divinity is not absolute, and God is not the unchallenged king of Yishurun. To put this together, comparing the appearances and contexts of the name Yishurun in Shirat HaAzinu and in Vizat HaBracha, the blessing of Moshe that follows upon its heels, yields something like the following. Whereas the Song of HaAzinu depicts a state in which Yishurun, in other words, Israel, fails to recognize the uniqueness, supremacy, and kingship of God, and in consequence turns to various idols, the blessing of Moshe depicts the opposite state. Yishirun recognizes the uniqueness and supremacy of God. God is king, and God alone constitutes the supreme and only divinity. From a certain perspective, the blessing of Moshe constitutes an anti-Hazinu. Turning from the theology and religious state described by the two prophecies to the political and military state described by the two poems strengthens this interpretation. As stressed earlier, the first and third stanzas of the final segment of Moshe's blessing both emphasize God's military might and prowess on Israel's behalf. God drives Israel's enemies from in front of them and causes Israel's enemies to submit. In consequence, the central stanza of the final segment portrays Israel as dwelling alone, in safety, in their land, in other words, undisturbed and untroubled by their enemies. But this, of course, constitutes the polar opposite of the picture painted by Shirat HaAzinu. Like the blessing of Moshe, the Song of HaAzinu twice refers to the enemies of Israel. But in contrast, rather than the enemies vanquished by God, these are the enemies unleashed upon Israel by God. Israel does not dwell undisturbed, in plenty, safety, and security, alone in their land. Rather, the land is consumed, Israel is pursued, 
wild animals rampage, and the people are hounded by the sword without and the terror within. To put it mildly, the Song of Azinu speaks of a disturbed, troubled, unsafe, and insecure situation. Once again, the Song of Azinu and the Blessing of Moshe present opposite visions. Once again, the Blessing of Moshe reverses a key motif of Shirat Hazinu and constitutes an anti-Hazinu. These two points of contrast between the Song of Hazinu and the Blessing of Moshe, the religious and military state of the nation, stand in particular causal relation one to the other. As Shirat Hazinu makes abundantly clear, it is exactly the deterioration of the people's belief, their abandonment of God and subsequent worship of idols, that leads to God's anger and his unleashing of Israel's enemies upon them. By implication, the opposite is true of the blessing of Moshe. It is precisely the recognition of God as king, of God, as the supreme and only divinity, that leads to the success of Israel against their enemies, to dwelling safely, alone in their land. To take this a step further, the causal relation sketched by Shirat HaAzinu between abandoning God and idol worship on the one hand and suffering at the hands of one's enemies on the other possesses a certain history. As emphasized in our analysis of Parashat HaAzinu, the process of forgetting God begins in a very particular fashion. The kicking, the rebellion and idol worship of Yishuruin, results from what Shirat HaAzinu terms the fatness, the satiation and satisfaction of Israel. In the words of the song, But Yishurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat. You are thick with fat. You are covered with fat. As phrased in analyzing the song of Hazinu, the process predicted by the song constitutes a three-part process of satiation, idol worship, and consequent suffering. By implication, negating the process predicted by Shirat Hazinu involves negating the very first stage, the satiation, the fatness of Yishurun. This brings us back to the blessing of Moshe and full circle to Moshe's choice of particular words, his echo of the first blessing given to Yaakov, and his glaring omission of the sixth marker of Yitzchak's blessing, the fatness of the land. By now, this should no longer surprise us. Admittedly, as mentioned above, the final segment of the blessing of Moshe, as well as the entire blessing in general, constitutes an echo, reenactment or recreation of the blessings given by Yaakov before his death. By no surprise, the language parallels the first blessing received by Yaakov. Just like Yitzchak, Moshe refers to grain, wine, land, and the dew of the heavens. But the blessing of Moshe also possesses another aspect, a second dimension. It also constitutes a negation of Shirat HaAzinu, the opposite of its idolatrous and despairing vision. As such, it also negates the causal history of the satiation, idol-worship, suffering process that lies at the heart of the Song of Hazinu, Whereas Shirat HaAzinu, in a play on the motif of rich fare and animal fat that leads to the swelling of Yishurun, refers to grain as the fat of the kidneys of wheat, the blessing of Moshe blesses Yishurun with no more than grain. Whereas Shirat HaAzinu, in the very same line, in a continuation of the rich and carnivorous motif, refers to wine as foaming grape blood, the parallel line in the blessing of Moshe wishes Yishurun no more than wine. And most importantly, whereas Shirat HaAzinu dwells extensively upon the fatness of Yishurun, describing Israel as so satiated as to have grown fat, as covered with fat, and grown thick with fat, the blessing of Moshe omits any mention of the term or concept. Part of negating the vision of Shirat HaAzinu, of speaking an anti-HaAzinu, involves negating the primary cause and start of the satiation, idol-worship, suffering process that lies at the heart of the song. 
Just as the blessing of Moshe defines an alternative vision of recognition of God's kingship, success against Israel's enemies, and security in the land, so too it omits any mention, wish, or blessing that remotely resembles the fatness of Azinu and the start of a satiation, idol worship, suffering process. As such, the blessing of Moshe differs from the blessing of Yitzchak. Reading the blessing of Moshe as the opposite of a song of Azinu raises an interesting challenge. While the Song of Ha'azinu presents a vision of the future where the children of Israel stray after the foreign gods of the land upon entering the land and suffer in consequence, the blessing of Moshe presents a contrasting vision in which the children of Israel, cognizant of God's divine rulership, enter the land, vanquish their enemies, and dwell securely therein. But this very conflict requires some explanation. After all, both visions are prophetic, and both are contained in the Torah. How can they conflict? Or, to put this more analytically, given the prophetic context of both the song and the blessing, the very concept of opposition seems problematic. The nature of the anti and the term anti-ha'azinu requires some elaboration. In other words, what constitutes the relationship between these two prophetic and yet conflicting visions of the future? Quite possibly, we may be tempted to suggest a historical answer to the question. We may claim that the two prophecies that of Shirat HaAzinu and that of the Blessing of Moshe, refer to different historical periods. As such, the Torah contains both the Song of HaAzinu, the dismal prophetic vision of satiation, idol worship, and suffering, as well as the Blessing of Moshe, the optimistic vision of recognition of God's kingship and Israel's dwelling securely upon their land. In point of fact, while the Song and the Blessing do offer different visions of the future, they do not really contrast, conflict, or stand in a relation of opposition. Rather, they speak of different futures, different time periods in history, and different historical events. Alternatively, as argued above and telegraphed by the choice of terms such as negation, opposite, and anti, we may wish not to sidestep the tension or even contradiction between the Song of Azinu and the Blessing of Moshe. Rather, we should look for a resolution to our problem in the different origins of the Song and the Blessing. As we should remember, the vision of Shirat Azinu originates in a divine command. God summons Moshe to the tent of meeting, informs him that the children of Israel will stray after the foreign gods of the land upon entering the land, and commands him to write and teach the song of Ha'azinu. The vision of Ha'azinu originates with God. In contrast, the blessing of Moshe does not originate with God. Shortly after reporting Moshe's speaking of this song, in a deliberate echo, the Torah turns to this blessing that Moshe blessed. The blessing known as this blessing is not the song known as this song. It is uniquely Moshe's, unprompted by divine command. It is his blessing, his vision, and his alternative to the song of Azinu. In point of fact, the very issues of satiation and forgetfulness, some of the central motifs of contrast between the song of Azinu and the blessing of Moshe, constitute major themes of Moshe's discourse in Sefer Dvarim. Let us consider one particular example. In a lengthy memory passage urging the children of Israel to remember God, the desert journey, God's provision for them on the desert journey, and the commandments upon entering the land, reads as follows. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are satiated, and have built good homes and dwell in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, and your hearts will be lifted up, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness. The process of satiation and forgetfulness, 
of forgetting the redemption from Egypt and God's providential care on the desert journey culminates in the ultimate declaration of human ego. And you shall say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In place of this process of satiation, forgetfulness, arrogance, and self-worship, Moshe offers an alternative. He demands memory, memory of God's providence and recognition of God as the true power. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He that gives you power. In other words, the negation of satiation and forgetfulness and the teaching of memory and the recognition of God's power in their stead comprise a central part of Moshe's teaching. To put this together, the blessing of Moshe constitutes Moshe's reaction to the Song of Ha'azinu, while the Song of Ha'azinu forecasts the forgetting of God in the face of the fatness, the material plenty of the land, the blessing of Moshe offers an alternative paradigm and vision. Despite inhabiting a land of grain and wine of the dew of the heavens, Israel can remember that there is none like God. Despite the temptation to become satiated, forget and slide into idol worship, another possibility exists. Moshe blesses Israel with memory, with consciousness of God as king, of God as their power and provider. Moshe offers an alternative to the dismal paradigm of the song, to the dismal process of satiation, idol worship, and suffering. To close the circle, we seem to have arrived at a metaphysical impasse. On the one hand, in the song of Hazinu, God declares his vision of the future. It is the depressing picture of satiation, idol worship, and suffering. On the other hand, in the blessing of Moshe, Moshe counters with his alternative and optimistic vision, an optimistic world of consciousness of God's kingship, his power and his providence. Yeshurun knows God and dwells securely in its land. But can Moshe truly teach other than what God has already spoken? If God already knows what will occur after Moshe's death and has instructed Moshe to teach it, does this not mean that the story of Ha'azinu constitutes the only real possibility? How can Moshe suggest otherwise? How can he present the possibility of his own blessing? Needless to say, this constitutes a false dilemma. In biblical theology, God's foreknowledge does not negate human free will. Despite the prophetic nature of Shirat Ha'azinu, the choice still rests with Israel, with the people themselves. They can choose forgetfulness, they can choose the slippery slope of satiation and the dismal world of the Song of Ha'azinu, or they can choose otherwise. They can choose consciousness of God, his kingship, his power, and the blessing of Moshe. But this is not really the point. Rather, the truly dramatic point is about the narrative flow of the end of Devarim and the character of Moshe. Confronted with the imminent end of his career and life, God informs Moshe that it has all been for naught. After his death, the people will stray after the gods of the land. They will abandon God and suffer horribly. His teaching has failed. They will forget and his last divinely commanded mission is to inform the people of such. While Moshe faithfully carries out God's command and teaches the people Shirat Azinu, he is not deterred, nor does he desist from his teaching and his Torah. One last time he rises before them to speak. Ever the man of God and servant of the Lord, he reminds the people that things can be otherwise. They can remember. They need not forget. He presents an alternative vision, a vision of consciousness of God's kingship, power, and providence, a vision of blessedness in which Israel dwells securely in its land. He seals his Torah, the teaching of Moshe, with his own personal vision and stamp.